0: But money finds you when your frequency is high. And when we have high frequency is when we have joy, when we have aliveness, when we have gratitude, when we have self-love, when we have self-respect, when we have consciousness and awareness. That raises up our frequency to understand for money to find us. And how does money find us? Well, money finds us through our ideas and ideas are abundant.
1: Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life.
2: Hey, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Kim Curtis. Kim is the CEO of the Wealth Legacy Institute and is proud to be part of a firm that puts clients first. For Kim, how you deal with money says a lot about how you deal with life. She's the best-selling author of Money Secrets, Keys to Smart Investing, published by Financial Literacy Press. She shared the stage with the likes of astronaut Buzz Aldrin at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. She's received the Financial Innovator Award with the Business Expert Forum at the Harvard Faculty Club, and it was featured on the Jumbotron in Times Square. We're going to have to get that story later. Her mission is to give women the right mindset and money formula to help them get comfortable with their money so they can focus on creating lives of purpose. Kim, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast.
0: Oh, Thanks, Jonathan. Happy to be here.
2: So first of all, where do you call home and where are you connecting from now?
0: That's a two-question part. You're right. I actually grew up in Buffalo, New York. But I thankfully live in Denver, Colorado, and I've been in Denver for the past 30 years.
2: So you went from cold to cold?
0: No, 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 no. I went from cold to sunshine.
2: Isn't it? Doesn't? Don't you get like 20 feet of snow in Denver? Don't you get a lot of snow?
0: No, we did just have 10 inches two days ago. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not cold, though
0: we generally show that to the country so that everyone wants to come to Colorado to ski. So that's really more of a media game than the reality of Denver.
2: Huh. So um, this is an aside, but my wife and I are looking for that mountain home, that place. And we have a place in Tahoe, but eventually yep. we we'll want to go to Colorado or Montana or, and that's what she says. She said, Colorado is very, very, very sunny, Montana less so. That's your experience. Thirty years, it's sunny.
0: It is true, but Montana does have big sky. Not to... (laughs)
2: There's
0: a lot to be said for that. I think Colorado, a lot of people are finding Colorado, so it's becoming populated quickly.
2: I think a lot of people are finding everywhere. There's nowhere to hide anymore. I mean...
0: Nowhere to hide. Yeah. I know. All of the great... Hey, you know, with the pandemic, people did not want to live in Buffalo. (laughs) Or (laughs) Bay Area. Yeah, that's exactly right.
2: So you, you grew up in Buffalo... What was it like growing up in Buffalo? What did you learn about money and entrepreneurship?
0: You know, back in the day, Buffalo was actually a very blue collar city. Surprisingly, it's not anymore. It's actually a big banking community. They've done a really good job of changing industries. So for me, my father worked for Ford Motor Company. You know, I mean, he had a pension. Growing up on the lake was really fun because being near water, unlike in Denver, Colorado, we don't have water. But it was really a community that was very industrial, blue collar that everyone had out. Like we would have dinner at like three in the afternoon because my dad had a shift and, you know, he would get off his shift. And then, you know, we would have this early dinner when all my other friends had dinner at like 536. So it was kind of weird that we had this his schedule that forced our early dinners back in the day.
2: So was there, I mean, do you have any memories of, you know, parents fighting about money or was it just so smooth because of the kind of an industry job and a pension and security and all that?
0: My mother handled the day-to-day bills. I think my dad would give her the money and she would take care of the bills and give him cash for spending money. I can't believe I know that, but that's what they would do. And I remember going door to door selling uh, holiday cards, you know, to make some coin for myself. So, so I had my own money. And that was all well and good, but my parents divorced when I was a teenager and my mom got full custody of three teenage girls and she had no employable skills. Oof. So <laughs> to watch my mother, With no employable skills she applied for and received government assisted lunches for us so i had this red paper ticket it actually looked just like one of those lottery tickets today that you have you know like for a raffle ticket it looked just like that and that was to indicate that you were a poor kid in school as you had handed that ticket to the cashier in the lunch line so i would go to the furthest line away from my friends Look back before and grab it, put it under my tray, you know, get out of my pocket, slide my tray down and look back and quickly hand that to the cashier. But the shame around that and the not enoughness and who am I and I'm unworthy was a narrative that I carried into early adulthood.
2: So tell me about the transition from, because I'm imagining you're pretty aware of money at 11, 12, 13, and then the divorce and then the sort of the awareness of lack Talk yes. about the transition. I don't know that... I haven't had anyone that, that's experienced that kind of a transition.
0: Oh, and no one has asked me that question before. So my father, because he worked at Ford, he would get a new car like every year, every other year. That was very important to him. And that was pre-leasing. So we would always have the nicest car on the block. But back then, you know, imagine a Ford Country Squire. <laughs> With the paneling, the fake paneling on the side, you know, that was him cruising around in his country squire.
2: Super proud of that car. Super, Super
0: proud. proud. But we would go on Sunday drives. And so he could drive his car and we'd go get ice cream somewhere or something. But yeah, that was a huge transition of having it feeling like we fit in, maybe a little above, but mostly fit in to then, you know, back in the 70s, really no one, that I knew of was divorced. None of my friends' parents were divorced. So that was another whole area that I wasn't quite, completely tapped into as much as my older sister was tapped into. That was her narrative. Mine was more about, where's the money? How come I don't have any? And I wanna go play with my friends and I wanna go to movies and I wanna get corduroy Levi jeans.
2: <laughs> um, just the important things.
0: Yeah, you, well, cause you wanna fit in, you know? You wanna fit in. So you wanna wear the clothes that everyone else is wearing.
2: Yeah, I, I was raised between my third birthday and my 15th birthday. Neither of my parents had jobs. So I was raised with very little. And I remember I played soccer and I sold sandwiches, chocolate, all kind of you know, buttons door to door for fundraisers, for the church trip, for fundraisers, for the soccer trip, for fundraisers, for all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. But that sense of lack that holds on. How have you dealt with that? Like as you grew older?
0: Yeah, well, it, when I my mother was a director of a majorette and drum corps and so she had all three of us girls in this corps that would go to parades every weekend and so and she did that since i was like three years old to probably teenager and so by the time and that really met a lot of my mom's needs because she was a majorette when she was in high school and you know so that was like her jam So when I got to high school, I was like, enough of this. So Ken, my parents are divorced now. Like I am calling the shots on my own life, right? Sure. Yeah, not really. But I played sports. And once I played sports, all of a sudden my life unfolded like, wow, I'm good at this. And imagine had I played sports when I was younger, I could have been really good. But my exposure was in high school and I was really good at it. And I think that helped with my self-esteem. And the other thing, Jonathan, is that my mom had a really special value that she really instilled in us. And that was to make sure you get your education because no one can take it away from you. Right. And so all three of us went to college. I went to undergrad in New York, Elmira College, below Cornell and Ithaca. And then after undergrad, went to law school. And that's when I moved out to Denver is to go to University of Denver College of Law. And so that was important to me. But what happened right after law school, within six months, I defaulted on my school loans. In today's dollars, it was worth about ninety two thousand dollars. I had no business, one, having that kind of debt two understanding the impact that that would have on my life. Three, the impact on my credit report and what that meant. I was completely unconscious around money and the implications of what that meant for me personally. And what happened, Jonathan, you won't believe this. It is unbelievable. What happened is I had an anonymous donor pay a thousand dollars on my school loan debt. And now back then to me, it was like that thousand dollars was like a million dollars. It was like, wow. And the fact that I was unconscious, the fact that I even opened up my statement my loan statement was in itself unusual because I believe that how you do money is how you do life. And if your head is in the sand in money, trust me, you're not, it's in the sand in other areas of your life. So the fact that I opened up the statement saw and noticed that the bill went down was in itself remarkable. And at that moment, because it was anonymous, Jonathan, it was almost like a snap because it was like, I couldn't go to the person and say, why me? Or what do you want from me? (laughs) I had to ask that to myself. And so the idea of someone believes in me, that all of a sudden is love. If someone believes in me, what is it that they believe in? Who do they see and what do I see and who do I want to be? And I have to tell you from that, it was like this rush of one. I think self-love, if I were to really be honest. And then that self-respect, self-love, who am I? Who do I want to be? I think that was the very first time in my life that I recognized that stuff happens, events happen in our life all the time that we have no control over. But what I recognized at that point that I did have control over the responses or the choices that I make, and that will determine my outcomes. So it was one of those signature events of self-love, self-respect, consciousness, Self-awareness, asking myself those questions that from that point forward, I kind of took control of my destiny and made different choices in my life.
2: So, I mean, that, I've never heard of somebody just opening up their $92,000 debt statement and discovering that someone they didn't know somehow had made a payment for them. Yeah. Like that's the first time I've heard that. Have you ever figured out, did you ever find out who it was after the fact or...
0: Yeah. You know, not many people ask me that second follow-up question. And I did. I did end up finding out who it was uh, several, several months later. And it actually was a woman who went to the church that I went to. Yeah. And she had no money herself. She was a single woman, had no money herself, but she had the biggest and kindest of hearts.
2: What do you do? when you discover that, I mean, how do you respond to that? Other than, you know what, I got to believe in myself. I got to pull my shit together. What do you do?
0: (laughs) I think at the time, you know, when you're in your early twenties, it's all about you. Yeah. And so I think it was just the gratitude of thanks. Thank you. But the better story, Jonathan, is about 15 years later, I looked her up, maybe even 20, if I were to be honest. I have been my legal background was in negotiation mediation and arbitration and at 30 i moved into finance and so i was a decade into finance that i looked her up and she believe it or not it took me a bit to find her she was still in denver but that weekend she was having a yard sale to put all sell all of her stuff and she was moving back to philadelphia to take care of her aging parent so that was my only weekend and whatever i heard intuitively to say look up this person and i had an envelope in my pocket and that envelope had five thousand dollars in it and i showed up
2: it's beautiful it's beautiful
0: yeah and and said this is the interest you made a good investment
2: (laughs) that's lovely that is so that is just that's fantastic i love that that's one of the best stories i've heard so you graduate as an attorney arbitration mediation and you practice that for like 10 years. How do you then yes. say, you know what, I'm going to be a financial advisor? How does that happen?
0: Yes, I was not an attorney. The area was a judicial administration that was mm, my degree. Mm. And so as a result of that, I worked for a national dispute resolution firm headquartered out of New York City. And I did a lot of mediations, dispute settlements. And what happened is I moved up in the organization and no longer was in the heart of the matter of doing settlement. Con- I became a spokesperson. And so... I was entrepreneurial because I moved to Salt Lake city to open up a Salt Lake city office of that organization. So it was entrepreneurial and I really liked what that was all about. And I worked my butt off and I thought, God, imagine if I worked my butt off for me. And so, you know, I don't know listeners and viewers out there who have friends in human resources that know all of those psychological tests to take about what that next could be for you as it relates to employment. And so I got into finance from a quiz. Wow! (laughs) Yeah, that's finance would be something I would do well in.
2: But you didn't start as did you start as an advisor, or did you start as something else? How does that develop into founding the Wealth Legacy Institute?
0: Oh, thank you for that. Which I love that story. I ended up in a brokerage firm.
2: Me too. I did that. I built that
0: well for the brokerage firm, and one day, Jonathan, I read the small print on the back of a client disclosure statement. I read the disclosure, and at the time. It was only four pages, but it was eight because it was two to a page of tiny, tiny, tiny print. Yep, I remember. And being, having a legal background, the fact that I, one, embarrassed that I had not read it beforehand, who would? It was eight pages, but whatever compelled me to read that, and as I was going through it, I remember a tear coming down the side of my cheek because I had realized for the first time, oh, my goodness. All of these conflicts of interest and fees and 12B1 fees and sales fees and just fees upon fees and relationship upon relationship. And it was at that point that I realized I'm not a fiduciary as much as I do the best work. Oh, everyone wants to do the best work for their clients. Of course, of course. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business. It's kind of like when you go to the grocery store and what is on eye level shelf, you know, the products that are I-level. Well, they pay more to be at I-level and that's what happens in a brokerage firm. Wholesalers pay more to be at eye level, to have access to the registered reps. And so that's when I recognize that clients are primarily last, not first. You work for the house, not for the client, even though you do the best for the client. And so I wanted to change a firm and make it create a firm that had soul, a firm filled with humanity that put clients first, not last. And that's when I created Wealth Legacy Institute. And that was 17 years ago.
2: So how long were you in the can you name which firm? I'll tell you my firms if you talk about
0: firm, But the firm, actually, what I loved about the firm is that they are you all you have to do is go to my LinkedIn. The firm focused on financial planning. Okay. Instead of stock picking. So it was really a financial planning shop. So the lessons I learned about delivering advice was actually consistent with who I was. Yeah. It was I- just the way they did it.
2: So I did the Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, you know, Prudential, Dean Witter. I did that for five. I was at seven firms in five years before I started my own company. So I switched, learned a stupid lesson here, learned a stupid lesson here, learned a stupid (laughs) lesson there, boom, boom, boom. Went, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) it took me a long time to learn. So how long were you there before you started, before you started your own?
0: Longer than I wanted to be because I had two young kids at the time. And so I'll name the firm since you named the firm. It was American Express, Financial Advisors, and then it rolled into Ameriprise. And a lot of my colleagues had already left, but because I had young children, I had to get the timing right of when that was appropriate. So never look back. My colleagues that left ahead of me always said, what took me so long? And I was like, what took me so long? Oh my gosh. they tell
2: you that you can't do it yourself. You need the firm. I mean, that message is so ingrained as you're there. Oh, you need our research. You need our access to product Oh, you need this, you need this. And you don't. I mean, it's all so easy to get to. So I'm curious when you set up your RIA, like as a percentage, how many of your clients followed you and were you starting over?
0: No, one did not follow. And the only reason that one did not follow is they were moving to Canada.
2: Right. That's awesome. So
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a relationship business and managing money is really not so much the rate of return as much as it is the achievement of goals and having a life well lived. So if you're doing your job right, your clients will follow you because of you offer better outcomes.
2: I think especially at that firm, though, there's a lot of like insurance products that lock people in for a long time. Right. Maybe you didn't do that.
0: (laughs) Those firms are very, very good at stickiness.
2: Yeah, of course.
0: And that is very, very hard. I was able to find an insurance product through TIAA that Mm -hmm. didn't have any sales charge. So we were able to take a lot of those legacy insurance policies and get them into a no load, no surrender fee, much better product so that they can continue those for that solution, for that goal.
2: And so they can escape, you know, the institution.
0: The
2: sticky. The sticky, yeah.
0: I still own some of that from back in the day. <laughs> I didn't yeah, move my own. Take it Why did I not move my own money at the time? You know, it's almost like the cobbler, you know, the shoes are, your kids are the last to have the nice shoes because you're working on everyone else's.
2: So I'm curious, when you meet a new client today, what are some of that? and you talk about money scripts, what are some of the money scripts or the most potent money scripts you run into?
0: Before I to answer it, and then I'll share something. I think the people that come to Wealth Legacy Institute, they have at least two million and up. And so the money scripts generally have been resolved in some way or they piggybacked on a spouse. So I think what we see more often than not is that they're not communicating with each other as it relates to their next transition of stepping off. And so for us, oftentimes it's the first time the spouse has the ability to share what they want. And of course my background, I can hold that container really, really well so that they both feel heard and they both get what they want. And they could then from that point forward have joint and separate goals, Hmm. but they're on the same page and that in itself is substantial. So I would say the biggest thing is one spouse may not be as informed or not be heard and to allow them to collectively come together is kind of a beautiful thing. Because think of their whole life, saving, 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 saving for finally being able to live, live, live. And yet in the whole saving, they weren't necessarily collectively having those conversations.
1: Right, right.
0: So when I think about people that come to firms like ours, you know, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, have yeah, at the bottom, food, clothing, shelter, and at the top, self-actualization. Well, for us, people come to us the, of the four rungs, the bottom is managing money. That's usually why someone comes to us. And then that next rung is attaching it to the goals that are important to them. So you need the money attached to planning. Otherwise it's like archery without a target. It means nothing when the markets go like this, you have no idea what that actually means to you and your goals. So you have to have managing money tied to a financial plan for self preservation and under- and putting it in perspective. So if you do those two things, that third of the four rungs as you work up is lifestyle. All of a sudden, money that's frenetic and crazy, we have just put it down as a foundation. And once it's a foundation, it's no longer a gnat bothering you. You have this clear blue sky of fresh air. You could breathe. You got peace of mind for the first time ever, knowing that you're finally on track. All that work that you did, wow, it's doable. And that feeling, that peace of mind, that who I could breathe, Hopefully, if we do our job right, like we could get people to that place all day long in our sleep. We do that really, really well. But if we could do really well, like the best, it's the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. And that pinnacle is impact. If you could finally focus on the things that matter to you most because you've done the work, that that pinnacle, it could be legacy, it could be fulfillment, whatever word works for you at that pinnacle is what we love to do. And if we could get a client to a space that they finally can do why they're here on this planet, wow.
2: Yeah. That,
0: that brings tears to our work.
2: So that resonates so much. You know, I've managed my own practice kind of kind of the same way. It strikes me that you sound a lot like Nick Murray. Do you know who Nick Murray is?
0: <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment. I remember Nick Murray back in the day in well, the brokerage
2: world. <laughs> he wrote a thing. I love Nick Murray, by the way. I mean that with a
0: ton his work and of respect.
2: Years. So okay. he wrote a thing and you should look this up. You should Google this. He wrote a thing called Rebecca's River Keepers. And he looks at himself. Rebecca is his either granddaughter or great granddaughter. I'm not sure which. And he says, you know, everything I do, all the money I manage, all my earnings, everything, I am keeping the river of money so that it widens and deepens as it flows so that when Rebecca inherits it, it's everything. And he's, it's not mine. I don't care. I got plenty. I don't have to worry about it, but I want that river to widen and deepen. So he's actually at that pinnacle that you're talking about. And he talks about that pinnacle a lot. So you should look up that. I think it's a great article. You'd like it.
0: I wrote it down. I'll definitely, Jonathan, look that up. Thank you.
2: If you can't find it, let me know because I I have it. I'll send it to you. So you talk a lot about or you, you mentioned this idea that love yourself and money will follow. Explain that. What do you mean by that?
0: And remember, that's the story that I shared about my own journey of being in debt and now a CEO of a wealth management firm. Obviously, I had to do a lot of self-love, self-respect to get to a place for money to find me. I believe that, you know, people say I need money. I need money. Well, it's really quite the opposite. Money needs you to become something of use to the world. Money has no value other than the value that we give it. So actually, money is really looking for you. that puts it on its head. It does, doesn't it? Money is actually looking for you. So how does money find you? Money finds you. So when money finds you, when when you're in a place. I'm just going to say it, there's better words to say it, but money finds you when your frequency is high and when we have high frequency is when we have joy. When we have aliveness, when we have gratitude, when we have self-love, when we have self-respect, when we have consciousness and awareness, that raises up our frequency to understand for money to find us. And how does money find us? Well, money finds us through our ideas and ideas are abundant. So there are two laws of money, Jonathan. The first law is what we, human-made laws. This is what you and I do every day. So cash flow management, tax planning, retirement planning, estate planning, you name it investments. That's what we do as practitioners. The second law of money is natural money laws. And natural money laws are inherent in all of us, starting with giving and receiving, which is the story that I shared. That's a good example. To be able to give, you also have to be able to receive in balance also cause and effect. That's kind of like karma or supply and demand, intention and desire, ebb and flow. When we think of ocean and nature, the ebb and flow of an ocean, when it ebbs, when it comes to money, we don't really feel that great about it, but generally that's a chance to work on ourselves and grow us so that when money flows again, we're at a higher level to deliver better service to others. And then even mercy and justice. Those are all natural money laws. In balance. And then we need that in balance with the human money laws, because you can have natural money laws inherent in who you are already and believe and work all of those natural money laws. But if you don't understand the human money laws, you'll not be able to to capture it and put it to use in a way that is productive to the world. So that's why you need both in balance. But you start actually in the natural money laws. And if most people understood that, they would be more open to the frequency of money to find them.
2: So you spoke earlier about Maslow's hierarchy and how mm-hmm. generally people have the basics figured out before they come to you. And that's true in my practice as well. Are you at all frustrated with, and there's a reason for this question, and it's deeply personal to me. Are you at all frustrated with the inability to help people that don't have, mm-hmm. right? That don't, that have a hundred thousand dollars, maybe have debt. Cause I think there's a lot more of those people. And they really need the help more than the person that's got two, three, $4 million. So how do you square that in your own head in terms of your impact on the world?
0: That's why I'm having this conversation with you. I do podcasts as pro bono work, as a give back. My next book, which will be hopefully coming out next year, it's 90% done. The title of that is called Money is Looking for You. And the whole purpose of that book is exactly what you've just described. The people who need it the most don't have access to people like you and me. I think the industry is changing where people can get an hourly advisor to just focus on what that question is or that need at that time, which will help. We could get into a whole conversation about financial literacy and our country and the tropes around capitalism and what that means and the the divide between the haves and the have nots. There's so much around that that we as practitioners need to be able to give back in a way that's meaningful to help others. Because if we don't, ultimately, when you have inequality in a significant way, democracy no longer exists as we understand it.
2: Yep. I agree.
0: A republic, if I were to use an appropriate term.
2: Right, right, right. I think that we'll have this conversation offline someday, but I want to compare notes on, on how that impact can happen. I want to shift gears a little bit because you had actually mentioned Men and women are raised differently around money and investing. and I want to tease that out. like what do you think is the difference between how men and women are made? <laughs> well, why are you laughing? No, <laughs> this no. would be funny
0: to a woman. <laughs> All those women out there that are listening, you're laughing with me, I bet. Money was created by men. The languaging of money, it doesn't resonate with women a gross domestic product, inflation. I mean, these are all like, what is it, what, you know? It doesn't mean anything. What means something to women are paying for their children's education, making sure mm-hmm. their family has their bills paid, taking care of aging parents. So that's why the financial planning was a game changer in the industry to really bring both to the table. Cause oftentimes it's men who usually are managing the money and they come to firms like ours. It's our job to bring in the spouse to make sure that they're on the same page and to make sure that the man understands, wow, these goals are really important. You really need them because otherwise you'll get distracted by rate of return when in fact that really has not taken you off track that much in down markets like the tech bubble, the, <laughs> the recession, yep, the mortgage meltdown, all of those things. So I think one, the language is not wasn't developed by women. My grandmother, up until the seventies, women couldn't even get a credit card yeah. without having their husband sign yeah. off on it, or even for some get a job
2: yep, I, without yeah. their
0: husband signing off on it. So for mm-hmm. women, we haven't had the chance to like the training wheels to ride the tricycle very much until more recently. And historically women were property. I mean, Oops. my grandmother had a stash of money and it wasn't for an opportunity or a business, it was for security. Right. Safety.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep.
0: So I think if you come back from gender, just gender alone, and then add culture to that, and women in different cultures around the world, it's a very different conversation. So I think that just from the starting point of where I was and where we are today, I think it really takes a lot to have women engaged in the conversation in a way that allows them to want to lean in.
2: So I have a couple comments that I have to share because I I think there's something you said there in the beginning about, you know, men created the language. Maybe we did, and I'll I'll be part of that. I don't think we actually understand it either, though. (laughs) Fair. Right. I think that there's a lot of ink spilled and a lot of airtime spilled on things like GDP and inflation and rates and stuff. And at the end of the day, that doesn't affect our long-term outcomes. Like that's just freaking noise. And when I think about it, so the second comment is when I think about my clients, the people that, when I look up at the audience at one of my client events, it's like 80% women. I think that's because I lead with planning. And I think that those people are attracted, women are attracted to planning. They're not, you know, men are attracted to Bitcoin and things moving quickly and it's fast and it's and bright and shiny, right? Women are attracted. And this, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I'm not speaking as a woman. I just am sort of looking at the anecdotes and saying, huh, this is interesting. But I don't think anybody understands the data. Like I think we all like put meaning there that doesn't exist, right? Very true. But you know, I still am attracted by the shiny object. Absolutely. My wife is not. That's an interesting comparison. That's interesting to know that.
0: I do have a little shiny object myself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> do you?
0: I, I actually how I get around that. How? Is that I need to understand Bitcoin so that I can have the conversation with my clients. Yeah back in the day with my 12 year old son, we bought a Bitcoin, $250. Yeah. So and that's how I get about all the objects. It's all in research.
2: Yeah. 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 It's part of the experiment. Like it's you're, yeah, you're curious. Exactly. You got to find out. It's part of the experiment. Right.
0: That's right. I'll
2: own my Bitcoin through the companies that I own. Like they, they can do it. <laughs> I don't know what to think about it. Fair enough. Right right? So are you seeing those gender differences change? I mean, do you have, I mean, and maybe because of what you do, you're only looking at people that are retiring, but if you're looking at like their children, do you think those gender differences are the same or do you think they're changing?
0: No, you probably are. I don't know if you've read, I remember when I read this, I was shocked, but I thought it's so true that each generation is smarter than the generation before it. Of course. Exactly. I was thinking of my parents, duh. Yes. And then I went, oh my gosh, I have a daughter and a son. And I thought, Wow, they are smarter, they show up different. And so, yes, I would answer the question, I have a daughter that's 25 and a son that's 23. And my daughter very much, she is very independent. She's very money aware. She articulates her needs really well with her companion. And he's also, you know they do really well together as a couple. And so I hope she, yes, I would love, I also hope that she heard a little nuggets from me along the way. But I do think that women, and with the whole gig economy and various other things, that women are more empowered than my generation. And my generation was absolutely more empowered than my mother's in the 50s. And my mother in the 50s was absolutely more empowered than my grandmother during the Great Depression.
2: So it's one on the right tra- trajectory, for sure.
0: Yeah, I would like to think that we're getting smarter about how we show up. And it will be interesting to see, I mean, sustainability and various other issues that we need to address, that I think that our younger generation already probably has the answers to the solutions.
2: Right. That's not for us to solve, but we need to have a younger...
0: We don't have the brain to solve it.
2: Right. We need to actually reduce the age in our political population so that they can start making different decisions. Because right now we're, you know, we're electing octogenarians too much. (laughs) Anyway...
0: (laughs) in our house that there should be an age limit
2: uh, totally.
0: for being in the, in Congress.
2: Totally. Yeah, that'd yeah, 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 for sure. So I want to go back to something you've said in the beginning. I want to pull on it a little bit more because you sold Christmas cards or cards, door to door as a kid. How old were you when you did this? 10. Okay. Can you
0: believe that going door to door as a 10 year old today?
2: I did. Well, today, no, but I did it. So that's what I was going to ask is your kids, do they do that at all?
0: No. You know what? As a matter of fact, I didn't want my kids to do that. (laughs) So when they had to buy something for their school, I would just pay whatever that requirement was.
2: Okay. This is good. I'm glad we're going here. I do the same thing. So I was raised with very little. I had to do the fundraisers so that I could do the thing. My kids were given everything. I wonder and I worry a great deal that I did not put roadblocks and challenges in front of them so that they didn't have to overcome them, so they didn't have to become better themselves. Do you worry about that? Am I insane?
0: Well, there is data on that in terms of family wealth. And you may have heard the expression, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, that proverb. And it's a universal proverb that goes through countries, clogs to clogs, rice paddy to rice paddy. And that is you have a An entrepreneur that creates the wealth, has an idea, creates the wealth, and then the next generation moves to the city and joins the opera board. And the third generation, the family is fractured and the money is gone. So there is uh, data that, yes, we may not be doing the best for our children. I would like to think that I make it up in different ways of how I make them struggle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's a certain amount of implemented false struggle, like... But mm-hmm. I, I wonder I about that, where's the money coming from fear? Because I think you built something. And I think you built something because you had that, where's the money coming from fear? And I think mm-hmm. I built something. And I think I built it because I had that fear. My Definitely. kids never had that fear. And it's, that's, I worry about that as they go out into the world. And that doesn't, I'm not saying everyone has to build something. But overcoming is an important part of growing.
0: Well, I think the struggle allows for the other side gratitude.
2: Right. Yeah, you understand how hard it is to do this, so you can be really grateful for what you have. I that's it's true.
0: Yeah, and respect for others. You know, when you struggle and have gratitude, you're more open to the diversity of others. Yeah, and the story.
2: And listen, and seeing their struggles. Yeah, I hear about that struggle. That struggle's hard. It really is. There's a ton of noise out there. I ask every single person to sort of simplify it for us. Maybe you heard Paul's uh, response to this, and when you listen to that podcast. If you were to meet someone who struggles with their money on a flight cross country, what is one thing that you would say that they should do today that would lead to better personal and financial success?
0: Well, there is the quantitative side and then there's the qualitative side.
2: You pick what's the most important. You only get one.
0: Okay. If that's the case, if I only get one, set up automatic savings so that you don't have to think about it. And you can't, you know, and you don't touch it and it's automatic. Set that up immediately with your first job. If you're lucky enough to have a qualified plan or a retirement plan, ideally 15 to 20%. And don't ever think about it. And if you do that, and you're, if you give me a 20 year old, I can turn them into a millionaire if that's yeah. what they want. And that yeah. is the number one first step. And you do that, you're already halfway there to becoming a millionaire. Yep. As long as you don't touch it or take a loan against it.
2: Yep. I agree. It's a good one. And then the flip side of that coin is there's a lot of noise out there. What is one thing that maybe they think they should be doing that you would say, hey, stop doing that?
0: (laughs) There's so many to that. Stop following shiny objects. Stop listening to the media. Uh, Turn the media off. It's a distraction. It makes us sad. We can't control it. So turn the media off. You got your phone. You can get your news feeds. You can scroll through, click on what you want to see. But that would be the only suggestion that I would make in terms of not following the media's hype because that's the ratings and it has nothing to do with you personally. It just gets you off track.
2: It sounds to me like you've been reading Nick Murray.
0: <laughs> <is> so funny <laughs> 20 years ago. Yes. <laughs> that's cool. I'll really look him up.
2: So before we wrap, I want to go back to personal a little bit. So what was the last thing you changed your mind about? Remember those zingers we talked about? This is one of them.
0: Yes. I would say that it has to do with my son. I think as a parent, we want to, as you, Jonathan, and I have already talked about, we feel like we know what's fast, we have insight. And uh, yesterday, I just released my role in his decision-making. He graduated and got a degree in business, but he went back to get his one-year master's in finance, not our kind of finance, different kind of finance. And he wants to do something. And I just thought, you know what? He's a grown-ass man. Right, he's 23, he has been showing good decision-making skills. I'm gonna step back and watch his decision-making. Uh, so far, I've really appreciated the process he's going through. And when I stepped back, all of a sudden, what I saw was really nice.
2: You stepped up, that's awesome.
0: Yeah.
2: That's what every parent hopes for. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> when they step at 17 or 25 or 32, they hope frontal
0: that- low, frontal yeah. low
2: oh my God, it's so terrifying. I just dropped mine off at college. He went to he's starting at UCLA, my eldest. So I'm a little worried.
0: <laughs> tweet, tweet,
2: <laughs> I'm a little worried, but he's doing great.
0: What you're thinking about you did as a freshman. That's,
2: that's absolutely right. So is there anything people don't know, or maybe just don't remember about you that's really important to you that they know?
0: Oh, I don't know if it's about me specifically, but life is short to live a life filled with joy and aliveness. And if you're not, man, how can we get you there? Because that's the only place to be, to be able to follow the things of why you're here. We're all here, uniquely beautiful, to do what we're supposed to do. And I hope I'm doing that. And I hope that others can follow through my actions and my help.
2: Well said. Kim, how do people connect with you? Where do they find you?
0: I wanna say Instagram. Kim Curtis Prosperity is Instagram, which is fun. And I wanna say happiness doesn't retire is another Instagram post. And it's a movement of stickers. Uh, I thought I had one in front of me, but I don't. Happiness doesn't retire. It's taking a picture of a sticker of when you're doing your most joy. So you can be with your grandkids and you'll hold up this happiness doesn't retire. And we set up this campaign to help people understand, to have others see what brings joy to people. And it all started when my aging mom and my uncle, during the pandemic, we we rented an RV, picked up my mom, picked up her brother, picked up her sister and went to Wisconsin because it was open and had a hotel. And they got together and they danced and sang and laughed. And I sat there and watched, happiness doesn't retire. It doesn't matter how old you are. Joy always exists. And that's when I came up with the campaign. And now neither of them are on the planet. That was the last time they saw each other. But when you think about that, fleeting moments.
2: Happiness doesn't retire. I love it. Kim, thanks for coming on. We'll make sure everything's in the show notes. I really appreciate your time here. And I've loved the conversation.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. Me too.
1: Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.